Hey friends, just so you know, we enjoy the swear word and we rely on good old fashioned humor to get through some seriously dark subject matter. At no time do we intend any disrespect toward the victims or families of the victims in the cases we cover. Also, be sure to listen to the end for a few palate cleansing bloopers to reset your mindset. And with that, we thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy. everyone. Welcome to Crime Will Tell. I'm Carrie. And I'm Jamie. So Jamie, the case today takes us uh, back to the beginning of the Prohibition era. Ooh. We're about a year in. Cheers. Clink. Speaking of cheerings, cheerings, cheers, cheers, cheering. I wanted to honor the time frame by enjoying an older year of red wine. Yeah. Okay. Is that why you're wearing that flapper dress? <laughs> do you like it? <laughs> I do. I went to get some wine out of my wine fridge. I have no wine in this house. I have no wine. Like I drank it. I drank it all. Oh, so your wine fridge is serving zero purpose presently. It's uh, it's taking up some energy. It doesn't need to take up. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Okay. I need to fill that thing back up. But so I I just went and moseyed on over to my fridge and I got myself a nice light wheat beer. I mean, that counts. Yes, because they were pouring beer out on the streets in the Prohibition when that came. So so I'm enjoying a nice beer. What are you sipping on today? I am enjoying a little bourbon on the rocks. This case is a bit unique in that it involves a man accused and convicted of murdering his wife with poison. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Tricky. He was ultimately hung for his crime. And as of today, he still holds the record for being the only solicitor in the UK to be hung. Really? Mm -hmm. So we're situated back in the early 1920s in the UK. Okay. But it's not really all that common for a man to use poison as a weapon for murder, right? Usually that's a woman's. It's the ladies. Yeah, they, they get after that poison and it's not usually a man. But according to the authorities, that's indeed what Herbert Rouse Armstrong did to his wife in February of 1921. Wow. Okay. And apparently he attempted to do the same thing to a professional rival. Oh, shit. Or did he? Oh. There are those that believe Armstrong was framed. Damn. So we're going to get into both sides. Okay. Let's dive in, shall we? Yeah. Let me put on my floaties, all right? (laughs) Herbert Rouse Armstrong was born May 13th, 1869 in either Plymouth or Newton Abbott in Devon, England. So UK friends out there that that are listening, if any, we have many English names in this this case today. And so let me know if I didn't pronounce anything correctly, but I did look it all up and I I put some phonetic things in there for me. So hopefully I got this right. You're going to nail it. I know it. Plymouth or Newton Abbott, sources say they almost use it interchangeably. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe they're the same place, but they're not. They're actually about 42 kilometers apart, which is like 26 miles for those of us in the United States. So for those of us that are familiar with London, where we're situated in our case today takes place about 311 kilometers southeast of London, which is about just shy of 200 miles, spotting 193 miles. So if you're looking at London on a map, where 
due southeast up to 200 miles. Okay. While Herbert didn't grow up with money, he did apparently have a good family support system, which encouraged and enabled him to get a solid education. Okay, cool. He attended St. Catherine's College at Cambridge University, where he obtained his law degree and was qualified as a solicitor in 1895 before going on to receive his master's degree in 1901. Nice. I didn't understand what being qualified meant, as that is not a term that we use here in the United States as part of an educational tract. Right. A qualified solicitor is someone who has a legal professional qualification, which allows them to practice law in the UK or an international jurisdiction. Wow. So to me, it seems that that's about the equivalent of passing a state's bar examination here in the United States. For any solicitors or lawyers that are listening, let me know if I got that right. I also wanted to understand the difference between a solicitor in the UK and a lawyer in the US. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Because my mind, I'm just thinking like Bridget Jones diary right now. (laughs) Here in the United States, we don't have solicitors, which is a type of lawyer that represents and advises clients. They also do legal research and they provide expert advice. What solicitors don't do is they don't appear in court on behalf of their clients. They work behind the scenes. There's there's a specific type of a solicitor called a solicitor advocate that has the appropriate certification to appear on behalf of clients in court. But most of the time, solicitors is a solicitor and they, they work behind the scenes. In the U.S., a lawyer is a lawyer is a lawyer, right? It's considered a broad label for anyone that is qualified to practice law, meaning they've passed the bar exam. And any lawyer in the U.S. is qualified to give legal advice to clients and represent them in court, if that's sort of the focus track that they're in. So that's the difference between a solicitor in the U.K. and a lawyer in the U.S. Okay. So I kind of, I guess a way to kind of make more sense of it for me would be maybe like a defense attorney that's actively like in court trying cases versus more of a like divorce or a state attorney they're not necessarily like in a courtroom arguing on behalf of their client right exactly okay cool so this got me thinking yeah let me take us down a little bit of a rabbit hole i promise it will be quick and i'll bring us right back to the case let's do it i've heard the term barrister before yeah yeah which we we also don't have barristers in the u.s no so what the fuck is that right And while Armstrong wasn't a barrister, he was a solicitor, I wanted to understand the difference between a solicitor and a barrister. There are several differences, and most of it is the type of work they do and their legal training. So remember, solicitors work behind the scenes. They don't represent their clients in court unless they're a solicitor advocate. Barristers do. They absolutely, that's their job. They go into court and they argue cases on behalf of their clients. In fact, barristers will often use the legal work done by solicitors as the foundation for arguing cases in court. So they they work together a lot. Okay. Solicitors are usually employed by a law firm. A barrister is usually self-employed. Not always, but usually. And when they need to appear in court, this is my favorite. For whatever reason, a solicitor wears a business suit usually, whereas a barrister will, even today, wear a straight-up George Washington wig and a gown when appearing in court. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that makes so much more sense. Again, movies. It's like, why <laughs> Why are these Declaration of Independence guys in court sometimes? <laughs> sometimes. It makes no fucking sense until now. Learning. Like the gown thing, like our judges wear gowns. Yeah. Yeah. But our lawyers don't. Could you, 
Could you imagine? I kind of want them to start doing that. I want them to start wearing gowns and wigs. That would be I'd be great. so much more interested in law if that were the case. I would just be giggling. <laughs> you guys look beautiful. Love your hair. Back to Armstrong. Okay, okay. He qualified as a solicitor in 1895, got his master's degree in 1901, and he initially began practicing as a solicitor in Liverpool, where his family had moved when he was a youngster. So remember, he was born in either Plymouth or Newton Abbott. And then when he was a youngster, his family moved to Liverpool and then later moved to Newton Abbott to practice there. Okay. So he started in Liverpool, moved to Newton Abbott. In 1906, even though he had built a respectable reputation as, according to the Devon Live News, a, quote, smartly dressed, capable, and popular solicitor, Armstrong relocated near Hay-on-Rye in Breckenshire when there was an opening for a managing clerk at a law firm owned by Mr. and Mrs. Cheese. (laughs) Cool. I love cheese. He also joined the Territorial Army, which was like a volunteer organization, and was part of the group of men that helped make up the Guard of Honor when King Edward the fucking seventh laid the foundation stone of the Britannia Royal Naval College at Dartmouth. Jesus Christ, what didn't this guy do? I right? feel like the biggest loser right now. <laughs> <laughs> he's. It's almost like he's, you read this and you're like, guy, this guy's kind of a big thing. He's like doing it. Yeah. And I'm doing nothing. You're cool. podcasting, baby. Yep. In a laundry room. <laughs> Nailing it. A hot laundry room. <laughs> yeah. It is believed that during his time in Newton Abbott is where and when Armstrong met the woman that would eventually become his future wife, Catherine May Friend. Aww. Known as Kitty. Okay, cool. <laughs> Born in 1873 in West Tynmouth, a coastal town in South Devon, England, little is known of Kitty. But what we do know, according to the Devon Live News, is that her general reputation was that of being a, quote, domineering, loud, and unpleasant woman. Hmm. So maybe like some cats. Okay. Yeah, just big old assholes. <laughs> She was also a known hypochondriac, Mm -hmm. having many continued real or perceived medical issues. And unfortunately, this this part's a little sad. She really did seem to struggle with some pretty serious mental health issues. Mm -hmm. She was known to have verbalized suicidal thoughts on more than one occasion. Okay. Yeah, she said she was definitely struggling. And and in the early 1900s, man, mental health was like not a thing. You're just crazy, but there was no sort of help. Yes, you. and that is going to come back a little later. Ooh. Your foreshadowing is on right point today. Damn. Despite this crappy reputation and the hypochondriac and, you know, mental health issues, Armstrong and Kitty got married in 1907 and they settled in a home in Cusop Dingle, <laughs> which is a valley near Hayon Rye, where Armstrong was practicing law. Remember, he moved there to be a law clerk and sits near the border of Wales. They also have the best berries. I don't get it. Dingleberries? Oh. <laughs> oh my God. Come on. Yeah, yeah, they have some great berries. Yeah, the best. Blech. Over the next three years, Armstrong and Kitty had three children. Fuck. Three kids in three years. She was just pumping them out. She was a baby factory. She had a litter, if you will. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> They had Eleanor, the oldest daughter, followed by a son, Pearson. Isn't that a rad name? That is a a cool name. name. I dig it. And then the youngest daughter, her name was Margaret. 
They had these three children in three years before moving to a bigger home in the same town, Cusop Dingle, in 1910. Okay. So now we're in 1910. Armstrong is doing well. His reputation as a dapper and well-dressed man, as well as a competent solicitor, because it's all about what you wear, continued to flourish after moving to Hay on Rye, which is in the source materials also known as Hay. Okay. As he began to incorporate himself into Hay's society, he was appointed clerk to the justices and he became a prominent Freemason. Shit. He's just tallying up the cool things he's doing. I've heard of Freemasons, but I I didn't really know what a Freemason was or what Freemasonry really is. Mm -hmm. According to the History Channel's website, Freemasons belong to the world's oldest fraternal, meaning men only, organization that started during the Middle Ages in Europe as an organization of skilled builders. Today, it has become more modernized given the decline in, in the building of cathedrals. It's like not a common thing anymore. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that the Order of the Freemasons is hailed as the largest worldwide secret society dedicated to fellowship, moral discipline, and mutual assistance. If this is such a secret society, why do most people know about it is the first question I had. Hmm. Apparently, some secret societies do not necessarily hide or keep secret their very existence or membership. But what's secret is some of the rituals, customs, and practices of the society. For example, they have tons of different handshakes for different things and rituals. What? Yeah, and every Freemason has to learn all of these handshakes, and then they do it in the appropriate ritual. Wow. Can we do some handshakes? Do you want to make some? Uh, That's a hard no. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Are you kidding? I'm not going to remember a handshake. Damn it. Sorry. Also, side note, my little brother is a Freemason. Really? Yeah. I think he was surprised when he joined because in his little, like the community unit or whatever the fuck they go by, I don't know, he's the only actual Mason. It start, <laughs> and I read about that too. It started as uh, an organization of skilled builders and they mm-hmm. could be Masons or carpenters or concrete layers, which I think is a Mason, you know, stonework. But as times have moved on, you can be a Freemason without actually having a skill, like in the trades. Yeah. Think about the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. They were all Freemasons. Right. That's crazy. To bring us back to the case, we're in 1910. Okay. Armstrong is doing well in his professional life. He's married to Kitty. They're raising Eleanor, Pearson, and Margaret. He's volunteering with the Territorial Army, and he's become well-known as a Freemason. Nice. Things continue to get better for him professionally. When the owners of the law firm he works for as a managing clerk, Mr. and Mrs. Cheese, they died unexpectedly within one day of each other. Oh, no. Were they lactose intolerant? (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) But upon their deaths, Armstrong becomes the new owner of the law firm. Oh, shit. So now he owns his own practice. He's doing great. He's a dapper and sharply dressed young man competent solicitor nailing it at home however his marriage to kitty wasn't faring as well shockingly she was quite dominant over armstrong she had that lovely reputation it probably didn't help that armstrong stood just over five feet tall and weighed a little more than seven stone so like 98 to 100 pounds whoa a stiff breeze would have fucking knocked him right out he's just a little guy 
Yeah. And if you look at pictures of him, there's a picture of him and we'll post it on social standing next to Kitty on their wedding day. And she is a slight woman and he's probably a little smaller than she is. Damn. Yeah. Okay. By all accounts, Kitty would verbally abuse, berate, and humiliate Armstrong in public in front of others. So she had an audience and she was quite strict with him and their children. She was said to, here's a couple of tidbits of what she would do. She was said to only allow him to drink when he was ill at other people's homes, like drink their alcohol. Could you imagine not being able to drink at home? Well, no. And if it's like, if you're sick, you got to go to your friend's house to get some booze or whatever. Like, what if you want a hot toddy? Exactly. How many times have you heard me say, I don't feel good. I need a drink. It'll take care of it. Seven. (laughs) (laughs) It cures everything. I mean, I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. He could only smoke in one room in the house and never in public. And back then, everybody was smoking. It was the thing to do. He could never smoke in public. This is my favorite. In one instance, Kitty apparently arrived at the club where Armstrong played tennis and made him end a match early saying he needed to go home because it was his bath night. (laughs) And it was like a team effort. What the fuck? I I don't know. He was in a straight up. He was actively playing a tennis match. And she was like, Herbert, (laughs) it's your bath night. I'm not sure if that's what she sounded like, but she was like, it's your bath night. Time to come home. And you're fucking sweaty. And then she jumped up on his desk and knocked his pen off. (laughs) Because her name was Kitty. I get it. That's what they do. Wow. That's crazy. If Armstrong and Kitty had Facebook profiles back then, their relationship status would have been married, but it's complicated. Does Facebook have that profile married, but it's complicated? If they don't, they should. I think they have married or it's complicated. Yeah. It's complicated. I think it's just kind of a general like shit. Shit shit ain't going all that great. Yeah. But nobody would pick that because you use Facebook to make everything look perfect that's true it's a total facade actually it's complicated should equal there's a lot of drama yeah yep because while she treated armstrong like shit and armstrong seemed to put up with it they both seemed to genuinely miss each other when they were apart that's why they were married but it's complicated Hmm. okay she was like belittling him and knocking him down but they both seemed to really miss each other I don't know if I want to say like, aw, or that's some toxic codependency. Super toxic codependency, for sure. Nailed it. Okay. Yep. Okay. Bam. All right. Never mind. Enter World War I in 1914. Ooh. Okay. Armstrong was called up to serve due to his time in the Territorial Army. Remember, he was volunteering at the, in the ter- Territorial Army. He was given the rank of captain, and he served as part of the Royal Engineers Territorial Force, and he was eventually promoted to major. So he was doing well in his military career. Nice. Luckily, he was never deployed overseas, but instead he traveled all over the country while serving. So he was all over England and he served all four years. And it was during this time that Armstrong took full advantage of his freedom from the roles of husband, father, and upstanding competent solicitor (laughs) and engaged in multiple affairs over the four years he was in the military. Mm, I I don't love that. He's one of those. Yeah. He had me up until that point. Mm -hmm. He was also seen regularly pursuing much younger girls than himself while he was in other parts of the country. Ew. Gross. Yeah. When the war ended in November of 1918, Armstrong returned home to Kitty, their children, 
and struggled, really struggled to readapt to civilian life, which I think a lot of military veterans did. They really struggled to adapt back to civilian life because imagine what they saw, what they did. Now he's back under the watchful and controlling eye of Kitty. Wow. And it's much more difficult to engage in full-on extramarital dalliances. He wasn't all that... He wasn't all that discreet when he was in the military because it was basic common knowledge. But now he's like back in the same space, sharing air with Kitty. Now we're in 1919. Armstrong's successful law firm is starting to crumble. Remember, he was away for four years serving in the military. People got needs. They got legal needs. He's not around. They're going to go someplace else. You establish that relationship. He also became entangled in a professional quarrel with a rival solicitor whose name was Oswald Martin. Ooh, okay. Oswald Martin practiced law nearby. He was the only other solicitor in Hay, so it was just the two of them. The quarrel was over a property sale and had become quite contentious and costly between the two as they represented the opposing sides in the dispute. I mean, wouldn't it seem like that would happen quite a bit if they're the only two solicitors in town? Like They would just be on opposite sides all the time? Maybe, but I think this one was a little bit unique and interesting because it was two people in a property dispute in the same area. They both hired lawyers in the same area, whereas probably Oswald Martin's off doing his thing, Armstrong's off doing his thing, and they're kind of represented. Do you know what I mean? But this one, everybody was like in that area. So it was particularly contentious and it was costly. Meanwhile, Kitty's health is starting to deteriorate around May 1919. So Mm -hmm. Armstrong's been back for about six months from the war. The town doctor, Dr. Thomas Hinks, diagnosed Kitty with brachial neuritis. Which is, a, which is a disease that affects the chest, shoulder, arm, and hand, and it's characterized by pain or loss of function in the nerves that carry signals to and from the brain and spinal cord to other parts of the body. Shit. So basically, your central nervous system is starting to freak out. Yikes. When brachial neuritis occurs, the damage to the brachial nerves comes on suddenly and unexpectedly. Nerve pain is so painful. Like, yikes. Yeah. This is also a rare condition. According to John Hopkins Medicine, it's rare. And I find it fascinating that Dr. Hinks knew enough about this condition in 1919 to diagnose Kitty with it. Yeah, that's crazy. Especially since he's a veterinarian. (laughs) That was a good one. They're going to keep coming. That is really crazy, though, and sad. That had to be horrible. That had to have been extraordinarily painful. Like when you start talking about nerve pain and nerve damage, Mm -hmm. yikes. She ultimately recovered. Okay, good. And her health seemed to be stable for about a year until August 1920, when she started to rapidly decline again. And Mm. at this point, she had several issues, including vomiting, partial paralysis, heart murmurs, and she was complaining of having visions and hallucinations. Fuck. So naturally, Dr. Hinks declared Kitty to be insane. Oh, sure. She was sent to an upscale private mental asylum near Gloucester named Barnwood. Okay. However, her condition began to improve. By January 1921, after she had been at Barnwood for like six or seven months, not that long, both she and Armstrong were petitioning for her to be released. Really? Well, that's good. They eventually discharged her and she returned home to Armstrong and their children. But by the latter part of February 1921, just four weeks after returning home, Kitty was dead. What the fuck? Dr. Hinks was said to have been perplexed by Kitty's symptoms and condition. Even so, he stated her cause of death as gastritis. 
aggravated by heart disease and nephritis. Yeah, I see the look on your face. So gastritis is inflammation, irritation, or erosion of the stomach lining. That sounds painful. Yeah, that does not sound great. Nephritis is inflammation of the kitty. (laughs) (laughs) My cat got huge. (laughs) Nephritis is the inflammation (laughs) of the kidneys (laughs) that results in swelling of the hands, face, feet, legs, it elevates your blood pressure. You've got blood in the urine. Basically, your kidneys are have become ineffective. Ooh, fuck. They're not operating properly to like flush your body out of all those toxins. Right. Ooh. She was a fucking mess. During the length of Kitty's illness, Armstrong stayed next to her bedside. He would read to her in the evenings. He would leave his law office early whenever he could just to be with her and just sit with her. He would sit with her for hours. By mm-hmm. all accounts... Armstrong's concern for Kitty's well-being seemed genuine and consistent. Okay. I will I will say, aw, there. But uh, okay. during her extended illness, Armstrong was away one time on a trip to London. And while he was there, he was seen dining with a lady friend he had previously met in 1915 <sighs> while serving in the military. Herbert. Okay. I don't know if they only just dined but they were seen dining together. I doubt it. I'm not convinced that dinner was the only thing he did with this lady friend. There was probably some dessert. (laughs) (laughs) Even with his outward concern over Kitty's health, he was still engaging in Chasing Tail. God damn it. Around this same time, Armstrong also drafted a new will for Kitty. How nice of him. Leaving her entire estate to him rather than to her three children, which was what her original will stipulated, And then he forged her signature on that new will. What the fuck? Okay. And after Kitty's Mm -hmm. death, by all accounts, Armstrong seemed cheerful. Yep. He he was enjoying his newfound freedom. He even was hosting several dinner parties in the months following her death. He's like, I'm taking baths whenever the fuck I want alone. I'm smoking all over the fucking place. I'm drinking drinking. in the house. Yeah. While this is all going on, he's still engaged in that heated battle with his rival, Solicitor Oswald Martin, over that property deal gone wrong. Mm, However, shortly after Kitty's death, Armstrong started constantly inviting Martin over for afternoon tea. Mm. Side note, I fucking love afternoon tea, and I wish that is is a custom that we would just, it would just slide over here from Europe to the United States. Okay, well, invite me over, fucker. I love tea. I love it, love it. I do like tea. I'm just lazy. In October 1921, eight months after Kitty's death, Martin finally accepted one of Armstrong's invitations. And during this get-together, Armstrong handed Martin a scone with cream saying, excuse fingers, because he uses he uses <laughs> fingers to hand the scone to Martin. Weird. And this exchange, for whatever reason, eventually became an extraordinarily well-known detail of this case. So basically, people were talking about it. This exchange came up any news article you read about this includes this detail it's written like it's shocking well (gasps) the dastardly deed of handing a scone with his fingers i think it's more that he said excuse fingers like that's fucking gross and creepy like if somebody said that to me i'd be like it's no different than today where it's like don't excuse my hand like pardon my reach pardon this i know but then say that instead of (laughs) excuse fingers well after Armstrong handed him, him being Martin, the the scone with cream. Later that same day, Martin became violently ill. 
Oh, okay. Martin's father-in-law, Mr. Davies, who was a chemist by trade and also happened to run the town pharmacy in Hay, remembered that over the past many months, Armstrong had made several purchases from him for different quantities of arsenic. Oh. It became known in the community that Armstrong was waging an active war against a patch of dandelions that were growing in one corner of his yard. (laughs) Okay. He seemed to have a keen focus on eradicating every single one of them with the use of arsenic. Oh. I wanted to understand how Armstrong would use arsenic to kill dandelions. Um, One source said he would inject the dandelions with a syringe filled with arsenic. Fuck, that's tedious. Yeah, and the arsenic Armstrong had was likely in powder form, so I'm guessing he mixed it with some kind of like liquid or water or whatever if he really was using a syringe. Regardless how he administered the arsenic to dandelions, it was common knowledge in the community that he was using arsenic to wage a war against his dandelion patch. He must have really been bitching about this, like to anyone that would listen. He's like, these goddamn dandelions. It was like a side hustle. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, well... Armstrong's multiple purchases of arsenic made Mr. Davies suspicious after Martin fell ill after his afternoon tea visit with Armstrong. And as Martin was dealing with his sudden and violent illness, he remembered something. Several weeks before, he had received a box of chocolates at his law practice through the post. The mail, for those of us in the United States, we call it the mail, not the post. And this this box of chocolates was from an unknown person. It was anonymous. Martin's wife ate some as did at least one guest, Mrs. Martin's sister-in-law, at a dinner party the Martins hosted when they brought the chocolates out to share. They were like, hey, we got these chocolates. We don't know where they came from, but I'm sure they're fine. Have some. (laughs) Eat up, dudes. The guest became ill, Mrs. Martin's sister-in-law. She became ill afterwards, but Martin's wife, who also had chocolates, did not. It is said, though, that after inspection, some of the remaining chocolates were found to have small pinholes in the bottom of them, and after being tested, contained arsenic. Oh, fuck. Okay. When I, I don't know about this. When I, I, I find it hard to believe that a few months later, okay, the chocolates were still hanging around and in a condition where they could be analyzed. True so that. naturally, I looked up food preservation techniques and I wanted to understand when did we start using preservation to extend the shelf life of food? I was really surprised to learn that food preservation techniques began in the late 19th century, which is the 1800s, and they were being widely used in the 20th century, which is the 1900s. Okay. In fact, food preservation techniques have been around since 12,000 fucking BC. What? Mm -hmm. Sun drying was the primary Uh, method in prehistoric days, but that was the very first known food preservation technique, was sun drying. That's cool. Perhaps it's possible the chocolates were still hanging around hanging around in the pantry. How many of us have shit in our pantry that we've completely forgotten about and you go rooting around in a cupboard or in a corner looking for something and two years later you find something that's been expired for two years? Right. All the time. Typically the it's time. not chocolate for me, but I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So perhaps those chocolates were still hanging around and perhaps they were still in good enough condition with food preservation techniques, whatever, for chemical inspection and analysis. I... I still find this one a bit of a stretch. Pinpointing the chocolate as the cause for illness by Mrs. Martin's sister-in-law after eating this dinner, I just find that far-fetched that it's, oh, it was the chocolate. Right. They were said to contain arsenic. I don't know how true that is, but there you have it. Mr. Davies and Martin quickly came to believe that Armstrong 
must have been the one to send those chocolates with the intent to poison Martin, because remember, it was sent to his law practice hmm. and must have poisoned the scone that Martin ate. Like they, they firmly believed Armstrong sent the chocolates. He was trying to poison you. That didn't work. So then he invited you over for afternoon tea and he poisoned the scone that he handed you. Maybe. Or maybe he just hadn't washed his hands before he handed you the scone and you got some like fucking E. coli poisoning. Yeah, it's possible. Like there's other there's other options besides arsenic, but okay, carry on, please. When Dr. Hinks, remember Dr. Hinks, the town doctor that uh, treated Kitty? Yeah. When Dr. Hinks made a house visit to the ill Oswald Martin the morning after his tea time with Armstrong, he found Martin suffering from what he called an acute bilious attack and a rapid heart rate. Yeah. A bilious attack refers to vomiting that mm. is a result of the accumulation of bile. Mm. Yummy. Yeah. The fluid, bile is the fluid our bodies produce to digest the fats and the foods we eat. So bilious attacks can have different causes, one of which is gastritis. Ooh, okay. Which, if you'll recall, that's one of the things that Kitty was suffering right, from. Right, yeah, okay. Because of this, Dr. Hanks was struck by the similarities between Martin's symptoms and some of the symptoms that Kitty was exhibiting before her death. Ah. By now, all three men, Mr. Davies, Oswald Martin, and Dr. Hanks, they were like, something sketchy is going on, and fucking Armstrong is at the center of it. Hmm. They were fully on board, fully suspicious, and with these suspicions, Dr. Hanks collected a sample of Martin's urine. And he had it sent for analysis. He was like, maybe you were poisoned. Let's figure this out. Martin's urine was found to contain one thirty-third gram of arsenic, which is equivalent to around 30 milligrams. So keep, 30, keep that in your back pocket. We're going to talk about how much is that really. Okay. All right. It was at this point, Dr. Hanks was like, oh, fuck, you've got arsenic in your urine. And not only that, but 30 milligrams is a lot of fucking arson. Ick. Arsenic. <laughs> So he shared his suspicions, he being Dr. Hinks, shared his suspicions with his home office in London about what might have happened to Martin, as well as his suspicions that the same thing might have happened to Kitty. Ooh, yikes. Let's take a moment to talk about arsenic. Let's do it. Arsenic is odorless, tasteless, and it is not produced by the human body. Did you ever watch the movie The Princess Bride? Yeah. Do you remember the Iocane poison scene? That one funny scene where Wesley, and I think the other guy's name was Vizini. I think it's Vizini. They're in a battle of wits about it, about the Iocane part of being odorless, tasteless, colorless, and dissolving instantly in water. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> that's from my, maybe that's where the movie got the premise of Iocane powder. I don't know. But probably it reminded me of that. So arsenic is odorless and tasteless. However, it is a naturally occurring chemical in the environment. So arsenic is actually found in air, water, and soil. Gotcha. And don't we always just kind of have like a natural, very minimal amount of arsenic in our systems? We do. A very, very small amount, primarily because we live in an environment that has arsenic in air, water, and soil. So think about the food we eat, the water we drink, the air Air we we breathe. breathe. Yeah. Yeah. So we all kind of do, but it's extraordinarily small. Okay. There are two basic types of arsenic. There's three if you include the gaseous state of arsenic, and I'm not going to include that. I'm just talking about powder form. There's organic, which occurs naturally in nature, and then there's inorganic, and that's the man-made kind. And it's usually the inorganic arsenic that has much higher toxicity levels, 
And if a large enough quantity is ingested, can cause severe physical distress and death in humans. It's, okay. it's very toxic. Okay. Arsenic is used in various things that are here on the planet. That's why we man make it. But we may most commonly know arsenic to be part of the ingredients used in insecticides. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Death by arsenic poisoning, fucking, it, it's slow and painful. It is not a cakewalk. Hmm. Doses of just under five milligrams result in vomiting, nausea, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Yikes. Symptoms begin minutes to hours after ingestion, and they usually clear up within about 12 hours. But some people might react a little bit more severely, and it might take a couple days. Think of this as like really bad case of food poisoning. It's very similar mm. symptoms. That happens with under five milligrams worth of a dose. Shit. Okay. Martin had 30 milligrams in his urine the next day. That's a lot of fucking arsenic. Yeah. Yeah, big time. The best way to test for arsenic exposure is a urine test, which is why Dr. Hinks tested Martin's urine. A lethal dose of inorganic arsenic is estimated to be, we're going to do some maths here, 0.6 milligrams for every kilogram of body weight with death occurring within about one to four days from ingestion. Shit. A lethal dose of arsenic can be extraordinarily hard to pinpoint because the effects of arsenic are different on each person. Because it depends on a variety of factors, includes how big you are, how hydrated you might be, what's your underlying health conditions, do you have a pre-existing condition, the quantity of the arsenic ingested, have you been exposed over a length of time, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really hard to pinpoint what a lethal dose is, and it's different for all humans. But the um, NIH, the National, the National Institute of Health, they estimate it to be about 0.6 milligrams for every one kilogram of body weight. We're going to get back to that formula. Okay. I can't wait, Mr. Wizard. Now that we know just enough about arsenic to be dangerous, let's get back to the case. So Dr. Hinks shared his concerns about the suspected arsenic poisoning of Oswald Martin and Kitty with his home office in London, who then got Scott and Lanyard involved. Oh, shit. Fuck yeah. Scott and Lanyard. <laughs> and on December 31st, 1921, happy fucking new year, Armstrong was arrested on attempted murder charges of Oswald Martin. Damn. At the time of his arrest, Armstrong was found with a packet of arsenic in his pocket. In case he came across any dandelions. You never know. You might pass one and he'd be like, fucking eradicate that. Thing. Look at these motherfuckers over here. And he's just like, boop, boop. He also had many more packets of arsenic in the desk that sat in the study in his home. Oh, wow. Okay. So he had, he had a lot. Yeah. He maintained his innocence, though. He was like, look, I use the arsenic to kill dandelions in my yard. I got this patch. I'm waging a war. I'm winning. That's why I use the arsenic. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't try to kill anybody. I didn't poison Martin. Shortly after Armstrong was taken into custody, the body of his wife, Kitty, was exhumed, and they tested it for arsenic. Okay. Can we just take a moment to talk about exhuming a body? Like, <laughs> sure. Let's do that. Could you imagine being the person that has to do the exhumation? No. Or like opening up the coffin? No. That would be a surprise party I do not want to be a part of. Yeah, like you're exactly right. It's a fucking surprise. You don't know what you're going to get when you open that coffin. Some are like underwater. Some have significant rodent activity. I just, I think we hear a lot in true crime cases where bodies are exhumed for whatever reason. They want to reanalyze, they want to retest, they want to do a, a second autopsy, et cetera. But I, 
I think it just kind of goes over our head. Like if we just take a moment to think about what it must be like to actually exhume a dead body, I'm completely dis- disturbed and disgusted by it. I just picture this like sound and then like dust popping out of it. And you're like, what is that? Maybe. Oh, anyway, even though it had been 10 months since she died, her body was remarkably preserved, thought to be the arsenic in her body causing that preservation. Whoa. Okay. The very thing that killed her kept her preserved enough for them to do a second postmortem. Right. That's crazy. A well-known pathologist by the name of Dr. Bernard Spilsbury conducted the postmortem, and it was found that Kitty's body contained 208 milligrams of arsenic. Jesus Christ. 208 milligrams. (laughs) Okay. So five is... I feel like that's enough to kill Uh, a fucking elephant. Yeah. Probably a herd. (laughs) That That is crazy. Or a litter. Right. Yes. On January 22nd, 1922, Armstrong was charged with the murder of his wife. Fuck. Okay. So remember that, remember that math equation I gave you 0.6 milligrams for every one kilogram of body weight? Yeah. I wrote it down. Did you? Fuck no. I hate math. (laughs) We don't know how much Kitty weighed, but from photos, she wasn't a very big woman. She was, she was pretty petite. It's probably eight pounds. So using that formula... Uh-huh. If we use the estimation that she weighed, say, like around 54 and a half kilograms, which is about 120 pounds, theoretically, it would take approximately a little under 33 milligrams of arsenic to cause death. Damn. And she had 208. She had 208. If she 10 had 10 months st- after her death. 10 months after her <laughs> death. And I tried to find the stability mm. life of arsenic, and I couldn't figure I. I spent hour, like I spent like two hours searching like what's after a body dies, if somebody was poisoned by arsenic and they die, how fast does the arsenic start to fade from the body? The levels of arsenic go down, go down, go down. I, 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 I just, I wasn't able to find it. I finally gave up. I, I conceded. I threw it, I threw in the white flag, but 10 months after her death, she had 208 milligrams in her body. So I have a couple questions. Number one, was there any other I know they had their children, but were there any other adults in the house that could have possibly poisoned her? Like a housekeeper, a nanny? Yes. Okay. There were. And we, we'll get to that. Lots okay. of people, actually. Wow. Okay. Also, question that I'm having is, at that time, I believe people were using arsenic, not I don't want to say recreationally, but like for cosmetic purposes, and they didn't understand like the horrible effects of it. Like women were using it on their faces for discoloration and things like that. So in my mind, there's a possibility that she was getting into his stash and using it on her own. That's quite possible. Okay. In fact, arsenic was used in medications. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it It was was like, it was a fucking like, yes, it was, you could just walk your ass down to the local pharmacy, just like Armstrong did and pick yourself up some arsenic. Yeah. Also, did she eat dandelions? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> she was an outdoor cat, possibly. Right. So maybe, I'm just saying, never know. Yeah. So she needed, if we estimate her weight to be about 54 and a half kilograms or 120 pounds, she would need just under 33 milligrams to, to, to die. She had 208. Regardless of how the arsenic got into her body, 
it was very clearly arsenic that caused her death. Gotcha. Armstrong's trial began on April 3rd, 1922. The evidence against him seemed really damning. He changed the will. Remember, he changed Kitty's will and he forged Mm -hmm. her signature. He had numerous affairs. His cheery behavior following Kitty's death. The notable quantities of arsenic he purchased over the course of many months. The scone he allegedly poisoned and gave to Martin. Mm -hmm. Oh, and being found with packets of arsenic on his person and then also tons of them in his study. During his trial, Armstrong explained that he put arsenic in small packets and squirted those packets into the ground around the dandelions to kill them. What he couldn't explain, however, was why he was found with a packet of arsenic in his pocket at the time of his arrest in December when it was winter and dandelions weren't growing. Right. Ha ha. It was also during this trial when Oswald Martin testified against Armstrong and shared the infamous around the world excuse fingers exchange. (laughs) I don't know why that's such a big thing. It's just, it's like wherever, whatever source you look at it, it includes this. It's Hmm. crazy. Despite the damning evidence, it was largely circumstantial. No one had ever seen Armstrong administer anything to Kitty, let alone arsenic, or to Oswald Martin. No forensic evidence was ever collected or obtained by the police. Kitty had talked of suicide, and here's getting at your question. She had many visitors while she was at home during her periods of ill health. I mean, people were coming and going. It was not not a secure home. Some medicines in those days, like I said, contained arsenic, and it's possible whatever medications Kitty was on could have had arsenic in them. Right, yeah. Additionally, there was no known motive for Armstrong to murder Oswald Martin. The elimination of Martin, it would that would not have benefited Armstrong personally or professionally. If he were to kill Martin, they wouldn't go, oh, we, now we have to go to, to Armstrong. Like that's, it doesn't. Him killing Martin doesn't automatically make all of his clients go to Armstrong. Right. He would still have to like win them over as I'm the most competent just because I'm the only solicitor. And hey, just go a couple of kilometers and you'll get another solicitor. Most people didn't believe the prosecution had proven beyond reasonable doubt that Armstrong poisoned his wife or attempted to poison Oswald Martin. And they expected an acquittal, especially since... Armstrong had that really strong popular reputation. People still respected him. They did not believe that he was a murderer. Hmm. They just didn't believe it. Right. The defense argued that Kitty had taken her own life by ingesting a large amount of arsenic because she had absolute access to it. And she did this either by herself or with the help of one of her many visitors that she had when she was at home ill. The prosecution to this, the prosecution was like, she wasn't strong enough to walk downstairs. She was bedridden by the, by the end. She was bedridden and she wasn't strong enough to walk downstairs, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure about that because remember she was at Barnwood and she was there for like six or seven months and she was improved such, so much such that she was released and she went home. And then four weeks later she died. I'm not so sure that she couldn't have done that herself or found somebody that was willing to aid her. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. On April 13th, 1922, the jury found Armstrong guilty of murdering Kitty. He was never charged from what I could see in any of the sources. He was never charged or found guilty for the attempted murder of Oswald Martin. The trial was purely about whether or not he murdered his wife, Kitty. 
he was he was found guilty and the public was fucking outraged because again they held armstrong in high regard and they didn't believe that the the prosecution had proved beyond reasonable doubt rumors started flying that he was framed by oswald martin and his father-in-law mr davies because mr davies and martin were the only ones that supplied all of the evidence that the prosecution had wow that's very interesting the judge agreed with the jury though and he sentenced armstrong to death by hanging shit armstrong appealed but the his appeal was dismissed on may 16th and on may 31st armstrong was hanged at gloucester prison wow all the way to his death armstrong never confessed to killing kitty attempting to kill oswald martin and he adamantly professed his innocence He's like, but I did kill some fucking dandelions. He did. So what do you think? Do you think he's guilty or innocent? I don't know. It's like you could kind of lean one way and then look at it differently and lean right back the other way. It's, it's tricky. It's when there's nothing but circumstantial evidence, it's fucking tough. And that's, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I'm with you. I don't know. I really struggle with capital punishment in cases where you can take the exact same set of evidence and you can argue it on the side of the prosecution and you can argue it on the side of the defense and you can see both sides. Right. Yeah. I really struggle with that. I don't know if he was guilty or innocent. I don't know. That's a tough one. Oswald Martin never really seemed to recover, whether it was because he was either poisoned. I mean, it was said that he had 30 milligrams of arsenic in his urine, but who knows? Or from the stress of the trial. Either way, he never really seemed to recover. He and his wife eventually moved away from Hay to East Anglia. East Anglia sits about 350 kilometers away. So it's a, it's a haul. It's about 217 miles away. He suffered from debilitating depression, and he ended up dying about two years after the trial. Hmm. Damn. Not much is known about what happened to Eleanor, Pearson, and Margaret after their parents' death. They were all separated. Aww. They were given new names, and they were sent to live in different homes. Oh, that sucks. I hate that. I did an exhaustive search on birth and death records, but I had very little luck finding a lot of things that are accurate. I was able to find Pearson's death certificate, And he died in December of 1976, just shy of his 65th birthday. I think he was born in January. So he was Mm. was just about 65 when he died in England. I found a death record that might have been Eleanor's, but I was not able to validate it. So I don't want to give wrong information. So I'm not going to say anything there. While Margaret has most certainly passed away by now, because I think she was born around 1910. Again, I couldn't find any records If she was still alive today, she'd be like 110 years old. But she was still alive in the early 1990s. And we know this because a solicitor named Martin Beals bought the Armstrong family home in Cusop Dingle, and he practiced law. He was a solicitor at the very same desk in what used to be Armstrong's office. No shit. That's cool. Yeah. Beals didn't know anything about Armstrong or the history that happened at Mayfield, which was the name of their family home. He didn't know anything about it. But when he moved in, that's when he learned about Armstrong and the history of like what has happened in this house. He then connected with Margaret, who at the time was very likely the only surviving child, I surmise, 
of Armstrong and Kitty. And she was well into her elderly years. This was in like early 90s. And through this connection with Margaret, Beale started obsessively researching the case. He became convinced of Armstrong's innocence. And he went on to write an award-winning book called Dead Not Buried that focused on exonerating Armstrong by arguing that he had been framed and the victim of a miscarriage of justice. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. And that is the case of Herbert Rouse Armstrong, the only solicitor in the whole of the UK to have ever been convicted of and hanged for murder. Not a prize I would want to win. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. And there you have it. Wow, that's insane. So many twists. And we got through it. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, motherfucker. Flink. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing that. That is a very intense, crazy story. Did you like it? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. I wasn't sure where we were going. You had never heard it before, had you? No, I hadn't. And also, there were just like these little pockets where I learned some new shit, too. And I appreciate that. Yeah, it kind of opened you you up a little bit. Yeah, you're welcome. We're going to go do a trivia night. For sure. I I feel super fucking smart right now. We're absolutely going to get that question about what's the difference between a solicitor and a barrister. I know it. I can feel it. Wigs. Wigs and robes. (laughs) I fucking knew it. Love it. Yeah. So all of you out there, thank you for listening. And as always, please follow us on Instagram at crimewillbetellpod. And if you have any suggestions for cases or things you'd like to cover or anything that's happened in maybe your hometown that's not really given a lot of airtime, send us a, an email at crimewilltellpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Any questions, comments, show ideas are always greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews, throw them out there. They help us out immensely. It's going to help the show grow. Tell your friends, family, any loved ones, coworkers, people on the streets, whatever you got. Help us spread the love yes. and, grow, and grow this motherfucker. Let's do yeah. it. We really appreciate your support. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Bye, Jamie. Bye, Carrie. Bye, then. And scene. Guess fucking what? We totally wish we did, but we just have the shitty shit that we give you for free. It was just like, we, we need some more Modelo. It's my fucking favorite. So if you see blood just trickle down my neck, don't be alarmed. I'll be all right. I'm probably going to be alarmed. Yeah, so let's talk a bunch of shit. I hope it's well, because she's kind of a fucking mess. Just kidding. I'm kidding. I heart birds. I need to pee and I need to get another beer. 